Hello and welcome everyone to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We're back in the studio this week and there has been a lot of news. To get up to speed on the NCAA's attempt to bring some order to NIL and provide some relief to coaches in managing a roster, we are going to be joined by Ross Dellinger, my friend from Sports Illustrated. We'll ask Ross what exactly the NCAA's new guidance to members regarding NIL means. We've taken the calling it the NCAA's attempt to crack down on collectives, but is that even possible at this point? And we'll try to explain the difference between good and bad collective dealings, at least in the eyes of those in college sports. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on APPodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and or comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast, Ross Dellinger, my friend Ross Dellinger, the great Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. Ross, man, thank you so much. Hey, man, it was fun hanging out with you last week, chasing a bunch of news around, trying to figure out what's next in NIL and um, and covering those conference meetings. So it was fun seeing you in person for a few days. Yeah, same same with you, man. It's it's good to uh, see people face to face now. You know, it finally feels like we're uh, uh, completely out of uh, of this, uh, or as close as we've been to completely out of this pandemic. And uh, so it was nice to see a bunch of faces and hang out. And uh, yeah, I, did, I, I knew that it would be fairly um, newsy event, just given all the issues floating about, but it, it was even a little crazier than I even anticipated. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's look back and then look forward here. So I, I think the, the meaty news and maybe I think that maybe we should start there, like the meatiest news that came out of the meetings was actually something that happened. We are recording this on a Tuesday. It happened about 24 hours ago on Monday, which is the NCAA. I mean, they didn't make a rule. They didn't change a rule. They basically just said, hey, we got rules. (laughs) And and this is how they should be applied to this new space. Uh, You know, I think it's significant, but like a lot of things that come with the NCAA, and get spawned off into college sports, something happens and then we sort of go, okay, I guess in six months we'll figure out how meaningful it was. But I'll let you dig into it since you've been a little ahead of the curve on all this stuff and ahead of most of the reporters on, on this stuff. Just explain explain what happened and why it may or may not be important. Well, yeah, like you said, I, I um, the, there weren't there wasn't anything new as far rule wise or bylaws that the NCAA announced, it was, it was kind of just a reminder, like you said, of, Hey, we have these rules. Um, uh, and it was just clarifying. Uh, so to go back and I, I think, I think we had to start from maybe last summer when the NCAA was um, developing, had developed a permanent 
policy, NIL policy with guardrails and, and all this stuff. And they had spent two years doing it on a committee and um, they had it all ready to go. And then the Austin decision came down, nine, nothing loss in, as you know, um, any restriction or limitation on athletes um, was, was kind of deemed to be a antitrust or whatever violation. And so the NCA abandoned that plan to have a permanent policy with guardrails and some restrictions. And they just released a very vague, you know, NIL policy. And I think there wasn't any real clarification on, okay, can, you know, how can boosters be involved in this? How can local business boat owners who are boosters be involved in this? And I had heard that, uh, you know, over the last 10 months or so schools had requested more info from the NCAA and, they were given none. Uh, they were given no clarity on on any of this. And um, in all this is, all the guidelines are, is just clarity on, okay, these bylaws that we had, that have been existing still apply e- e- despite uh, this, these state NIL laws and, and uh, despite our vague NIL interim policy, um, the, the rule prohibiting boosters from being involved in recruiting still applies. And so that, that was kind of the gist, um, kind of a reminder to, uh, to everybody uh, in, in clarity to all the schools who had requested more explanation. It was a kind of um, gave them some, some clarity. So Ross, you know, just uh, when you start talking, like, like the way you just started that is, is part of the problem with covering this stuff and even really following this stuff, right? Cause you start to give an answer and you go, well, let's start back a year. Yeah. And and conceivably, I could even go, well, let's go back to 10 years ago when oh, the yeah. O'Bannon case and that's and the, the NCAA has been so far behind sort of chasing its tail on these things. And the 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 how you explain them, it's like as if I said to you, um, you know, tell me how you decide how you walk your dog. And you like went back to like the beginning, like the first time a dog was discovered. Right. Like <laughs> like these explanations involve so much, so much detail and have so many um, have so much depth that goes that goes so far back. It just becomes really hard to ha- to wrap your head around. So I laughed when you were like, "Well, let me go back a year." So yeah. let's so let's I, so let's fast forward a year, and now we have again these clarifications. And you know, what does it mean going forward? Like, what what do you think that this will actually make an impact, and how could it make an impact? Yeah, I I um I struggle with. Uh, with thinking that, uh, believing that this will make an impact. And I say that for a few reasons, having learned last week some things about the enforcement staff that, um, for one, they're down like 20 staff members um, from pandemic, like in, I guess, pandemic-related losses um, and also who wants to work for the NCAA nowadays, as one AD put it to me, so they're they're understaffed. The enforcement uh, group, um, and then there's concern that uh, you know state law. Um, <clears throat> there's thirty of them, more than thirty of them, protect these collectives and boosters, and that any enforcement 
on to their schools, um, any sanctions um, handed down to their schools will will trigger antitrust or other legal lawsuits and challenges. And so for those two reasons, the understaffing in the potential for legal challenges, the enforcement hasn't really done much to this point in all their, although they're give, they're finally given clarity to kind of go out and do it. Gosh, it, it'd be hard. It, it's hard for me to see them really uh, digging in here and firing off a bunch of investigations and sanctions. Um, and I will, I will say, I, I think there was a line in the, uh, the new guidelines mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about previous uh, NIL deals um, in the past. And if they are egregious enough, they violate the interim NIL policy enough, uh, then they can be, they can be uh, investigated. Uh, and that one is really hard to see happening because um that just opens up another avenue for a lawsuit. Uh, you didn't give clarity for 10 months on this stuff, despite schools asking. And now you're going to give clarity and then go back retroactively. And so when we reported some of that last week and it was said to us, said to us out on the record from, from Rick George, it was kind of like my jaw kind of hit the ground in that interview with him thinking, uh, are you sure about this? Are you mm-hmm. sure you want to do this? Like, uh, and they did. It's in the guidelines. And honestly, I've kind of heard scuttle that um, a couple of the uh, brazen boosters that have been, you know, pretty public with some things that they've done as it relates to NIL and prospects will end up being looked into. So uh should be an interesting few months. So in talking to, when we talk to some of the same lawyers when we're looking for legal advice as we talk to a leading as we need a lot these days when it comes to covering the NCAA I think we probably end up between the pandemic and all this stuff we probably end up talking to doctors and lawyers as much as we talk to uh, athletes and coaches over the last couple of years um I think when you talk to some of the lawyers what, what you know you talk about the retroactive stuff and looking back I, I mean, I could see a situation where you may end up asking some questions and poking around a little bit. But just as you said, if you hadn't provided any guidance and you sort of left your your membership in this gray space, the idea of then going back and tra- retroactively enforcing and, and maybe even punishing seems like a terrible idea from a, from a legal standpoint. Seems like an even worse idea from a PR standpoint to a certain degree, though I could also see that, like, listen, if somebody was doing something you felt especially brazen, maybe the way to send a message is to target someone, someone or some entity or some school that you felt like really, really was crossing the line. But I think that's a waste of time. I mean, even again, from some of the lawyers I talked to, they all said probably best to be forward looking here, probably best to sort of say, OK, every now we start from here, from May 9th, 2022. And from this point forward, we're going to start trying to, quote unquote, crack down because the idea of going back and listen, I could throw out, you know, Miami has had, you know, I guess John Ruiz is the is the person who runs there is a billionaire who runs their collective or has been very much involved in their collective, who's been particularly outspoken about, hey, we signed this person and we, we were involved in this person. But again, like I, unless all you're trying to do is make some kind of statement, 
I just don't know if what you're doing is a wise a wise use of your time, considering what you just clarified as far as the shortness, uh, uh, the uh, the shortage of staff. Right. Yeah. I um, I, and I think if you read the guidelines, you know that the retroactive stuff was just one kind of little piece. It was just a smaller uh, clause, uh, one of the bullet points in there. True. True. But for the most part, it does seem like they are more so um, geared toward looking forward. And I, I was talking to one of the uh, members of the board of directors and he, he kind of mentioned that, um, you know, he, he disagreed um, with that, with that bullet point in there. He, he thought, he thought completely the vision should be forward. So I think for the most part, um, the vision will be forward on this and the enforcement will be forward, but, like you said, there's, there's some, um, and you mentioned John Ruiz, and certainly he's one of them, right, that have made it um, pretty public, uh, their actions with NIL and prospects. And, you know, there's a bylaw that says um, uh, boosters, um, so anybody who's given to the school, even one time, I believe, is considered a booster, and um, they cannot have contact with a recruit uh, or somebody in the transfer portal, so a high school player or a transfer, uh, it can have contact with that person or people representing them. So like agents and such, uh, that, that is a violation of NCAA bylaw and the guidelines spell that out. And clearly we have seen, and John Ruiz specifically has been on the record about it, like he has had contact with and communicated and arranged deals with agents of prospects. Um, so that has happened. Uh, it, and it's going to be interesting to see if the enforcement staff thinks it worth it to pursue. Okay, so uh, two quick things. Just to uh, to tie up the retroactive uh, punishment and enforcement, uh, you know, you talked about, you know, so Rick George has been, a, a, again, a member of the D1 Council and part of the, I think he's a member of the D1 Council. I know he was part of the group that worked on the NIL policy, both back in the 2020, 2020 to 2021, when it was first being put together. And then again, was uh, when they got the band back together to try this, to try this new policy or this guidance. He was back on that board. And I use Rick as an example. He's he's a Colorado AD, does a good job, and, you know, he's a good guy to talk to on these issues. But I will say this. I think he represents why we got to this space. And and he's not certainly not alone, far from alone, in that when we ask, like, why did they get here is because a whole bunch of other members and schools and people within this business were like, what is going on here? And they were complaining to the NCAA and complaining here, there and everywhere. Like, we got to do something about this. Where is the enforcement here? So I, I do wonder and I've you know talked to a couple of people about this where the 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 nod to retroactive enforcement in some ways is a nod to those folks, especially, again, the most vocal folks who are like, Hey, hey, man, like this thing is out of control. We need to do something about it. So, again, I don't know how much it will be acted upon, but I think it was necessary to address how we got here, which is the complaints by folks at other schools, seeing some of these schools that feel like they're doing things outside the lines and rather brazenly. And I think it's guys like Rick George. It's a nod to saying, hey, hey, yeah, we, we understand what was going on. 
We understand that you're yeah. frustrated, so we're going to try to take care of that. But again, uh, practically, I'm not sure if we're going to take care of that. Let me switch to another thing here because this is an interesting item. Again, as you start talking to people here, the difference between what is inappropriate and what is appropriate. So I was talking to a Big Ten coach, and he mentioned something along these lines. I re- Basically, and you hear this from a lot of coaches, but, but I think the way he described it was interesting. He's like, uh, I think, and I think Nick Saban said this to me a couple of weeks ago, and in, 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 in maybe not in the exact words. Uh, basically, I, I don't want to start having to do these negotiations with recruits. I'm not really, we're not really into getting into bidding wars with recruits. But once they get through the door, we can do a lot of stuff for them through our collectives, right? We can set them up. And what I want to be able to give a recruit is I want to be able to hand that recruit, you know, a fact sheet and say, here's what our guys generally made this year. Here's some specific players and here's some positions. And if you come to our school, you can hope like the, the, we are, we are set up for you to get there, but I'm not really here to negotiate like exact details of deals. But if you, once you get your foot through the door, we, we will be able to figure some things out for you. We have that mechanism in place. So there's that approach, and there's the approach that they're trying to crack down on, which is those negotiations and those contacts with boosters are going on up front before you get through the door. So I, I guess I lay that all out to say, like, there's still – nobody's taking the money out of the system here. It's just a matter of when you can have access to it. Yeah, I, and uh, I've heard similar things uh, uh, as far as coaches during recruiting pitches, and I think this has been going on probably for shoot um, two years. Some of the some of the schools that were kind of ahead had put together, you know, pitches or or fact sheets, like you said, um, that outlined here's what our city community. Mm-hmm. would offer with NIL or here's what our current players now you could do that now you know here's what our current players are are being are making um and I think that is yeah a good like uh according to the NCAA legal a legal route um and you what you're talking about in the other route is right the the bidding war is promising these things to recruits and there's there's a line there and a lot of people have been dipping over it obviously uh in promising things and then agents or players themselves right i've been going back to the other school and saying well this was promised from school a and we're going there unless you match or go above it um and if your school b and you don't match or go above it many times you're going to uh, lose that player And I'm not saying this is happening at 130 all FBS schools. Cause it's not. And I don't even know if it's happening with every power five. I, I doubt it is, but there are certainly the top 10, 20, 30 programs in the nation. And, and maybe more, especially when you start talking about transfers in the portal where this is happening and there are bidding wars for players and, you can imagine, and I wrote about this in a way too long of a story last week on, <laughs> on what's happening in the college recruiting landscape with NIL, is that you're, you're having the bidding, under-the-table bidding wars, specifically in the SEC, 
become um, over-the-table bidding wars with a lot more money. Um, if you were talking, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars previously under the table, now it's a hundred, a hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, everything's just going up and now over the table, at least for now. I think what you're going to see, right, because of these guidelines, is it's going to go back somewhat under the table. So round and round we go. Right. You know, the other interesting part of this is it, it, it is an emerging market. I had a, a, a group of five coach text me um, who's got a little bit of a background beyond just football. He, you know, he almost went into different, more, you know, more legitimate business. He almost you know, with that kind of background. And, and he was like, listen, like m- this stuff isn't really affecting my program yet. Like we're just not yeah. we're just not in that mix right now. Uh, but I am really fascinated uh, just about like the, sort of the developing market here and how there's a lot of money rushing into it, which is probably creating uh, a level of inflation, which I guess is appropriate for uh, today's day and age. Um, but but also just the, the the prices are skewed right now. Right. People are super excited to be involved. Right. You got a whole bunch of boosters who, you know, again, maybe in the past were either doing this stuff under the table or wanted to, but, but didn't want to be doing things illegitimately. So now people are running, rushing in there, throwing a bunch of money around. And I do wonder, I don't wonder, I mean, I've, already, I've talked to some folks about this, about the idea that the market correction that will come over the next year or so, especially when it comes to investing in recruits, because you sort of wonder, and I know Texas A&M's got a lot of heat here, so I'm not trying to pick pick, pick on Texas A&M because I do have my doubts about the $30 million fund, uh, severe doubts about $30 million fund. But what happens at Texas A&M if... You know, a couple of those kids end up from this great recruiting class end up in the transfer portal and a couple don't pan out. Like, is there going to be the appetite to constantly feed the beast to the level it was this year? Or are some schools just going to say, like, you know, that didn't work out that great last year. So we're going to go back to doing some things differently. I just think that the whole market needs to settle to a certain degree. And that simply takes time. And that is not different from any other developing market. Uh, yeah, and, and and I think it was uh, I think Nick Saban said this to you, right? It's it's not sustainable, and you hear that a lot. Um, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Um, I, I think at at um, some places it is sustainable. Um, most places it's it probably isn't. You just don't you don't necessarily have the money uh, for it to be sustainable. Uh, and if it if if it if you if you're forced to make it sustainable, then that's going to impact the school because you're going to pull funding from the school and the athletic department. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another whole story right now. But but I think at certain places like uh, Miami, uh, where you have like a billionaire who is so invested in the program and, and has so much money, um, it might be sustainable in Texas and Texas A and M. Those places probably is sustainable. There's so much money and so much of a drive to win by passionate fans who are million and billionaires. Um, but at most places, it isn't. It doesn't seem to be sustainable to raise 10 to $20 million a year. Florida's goal is, the University of Florida is $20 million. 
And, you know, they were within a few days over or at 5 million. Um, you know, Ruiz plans to spend 10 million a year. Um, you know, I think Texas A&M is around that, that number, although they've been more private, they're, they're collective. So these places, there, there are certain places that just have a lot of money and resources. Right. And, and the thing that I'm, that I think is really interesting is, uh, the places that, um, are doing this the most. And, uh, as far as what I mean by doing it, they've raised, um, the most money or that we know of publicly the most money in some kind of NIL coffer salary coffer for players or something salary pool for players. They're all programs that are, have, have never consistently won or it's been a while Mm -hmm. since they won Mm -hmm. and they are somewhat desperate and they have a huge, passionate, resourceful, wealthy fan base. And you're seeing it, Miami, Tennessee, Nebraska, Texas A&M, Texas. I mean, they all fit the mold. And, and I think that's really interesting in that, you know, desperate times kind of call for desperate measures. And that's kind of what we're seeing. And, and it gets back to the sustainability. I'm going to bring it all back to say, uh, at most places, that can't be sustainable, pouring 10, 20, you know, million dollars every year into athletics, unless you are going to pull your funds from the athletic department, all your donations you make to the school go to the athlete. Right. And the other thing you'll, you'll see is, and I know this is happening at some of these collectives, again, that maybe are operating a little differently in that they're not necessarily uh boosters out in the front end of the recruiting process, but sort of making their promises that, hey, once you're here, this is how we can work with you and hook you up. It's activating not just the biggest donors, but activating all of them, activating the entire alumni base and saying, okay, listen, you want to don't, we'll take, Penn State's a good example. Penn State is a massive, Mm -hmm. massive alumni base. And I know from talking to the person who's sort of setting up their collective, they're saying, listen, we're not looking for just a few rich donors here. We're looking to get everybody involved. We got a zillion Penn State alumni, and if they all give 10 bucks, man, that looks great. Now, again, they're not looking mm-hmm. to get out on the front end and negotiate with recruits. So that's the other part of it, too, when you talk about what happened with the NCAA and trying to like regulate things in a little, a little bit. Like, I don't think it would take much. And this goes back to what you're saying, how some of this stuff might go back to being illegitimate and under the table, right? We're just going to start being hush-hush about it. About it, We may still have this recruit booster contact, which we've kind of always had in college sports uh, to some degree. That may get go, go below the surface again. But if you're Texas A&M or Miami, and again, I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but if you're some of the schools that have been sort of very out there publicly— or in, in some ways more public, and you just simply are told, listen, can you just wait until the kid gets on your campus before your collective engages? Like, that doesn't seem to be an unreasonable take or an unreasonable request. And I could see all of a sudden, again, you have this situation where everybody sort of goes, okay, we're going to take, everybody's going to take a little bit of a step back with our collectives. You're still going to be able to make a lot of money. We're still going to be able to engage with you, but we just want to get you enrolled first. And of course, again, behind closed doors, we can have all kinds of illegal conversations. So, you know, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago on a radio show, like, do you think they'll still be cheating? 
when everything is supposedly legal. And I'm like, you know what? At some point, yes, there will always be cheating because there's competition. So at some point, somebody's going to say, we can, we're, we're allowed to do it this way. I see a loophole. I'm going to do it this way. Yeah, and we've seen that, you know, history repeats itself, right? Uh, we, we've seen it uh, when you uh, uh, when you give uh, give them a bite of the apple, they they take the whole bushel or the whole tree. Um, <laughs> and boosters are that's what we've seen boosters do, right? It's like okay, you could have a little involvement, and then then you have you know boosters sending jets for people and paying people, you know, paying players two hundred thousand dollars a year or more. So. It's just when you give them a little bit, they they take a lot. And to get back to what you were saying about um, just wait till they get on campus. Uh, just wait. Just wait. Or, or even just wait till they sign with the school officially. Um, all it takes is one school during the recruitment to promise something. And then it kind of is like it sets off dominoes um, where, well, the other school has to do it too. Mm-hmm. And the other school does it. And then another school does it. And then, well, you got to stay up with the Joneses. So you got to do it. And you want this recruit really bad. Well, you got to do this too. And so all it takes is one school to do it. And, and I think that's what we've seen this past fall. Um, again, not to pinpoint one school, but certainly it's been made pretty obvious that Texas A&M was far and away um, uh, ahead of many programs in this whole NIL venture. And I hear from a lot of their uh, competitors during, during the last recruiting cycle. And they were just ahead of everybody. Now everybody uh, or, or the top 20, say 20, 20, 30 schools of the Power Five are doing what AM was doing last summer or fall. Um, they've just kind of caught up. Like you said, it's kind of a new space. And so it's evolving. Um, and there were some that were just ahead of others. And like you said, you would think there'll be some kind of market correction or leveling off or whatnot. Um, but I don't, unless there's NIL, unless there's federal legislation, there's going to be sort of um, this under the table bidding war that we've seen for years, of course, but now it's just a lot more, you know, it's just a lot more money and it's just happening a lot more. So you, you opened the door there to when you mentioned federal legislation. Let me hit you with, with this real quick. Um, was there any do you think it's significant as someone who lives in the Washington, D.C. area? In fact, you like to live in Washington, D.C., right? Like you live in D.C. proper. I do. DuPont Circle, about a mile and a half north of the White House. Beautiful. Uh, so and you've been at many a hearing and sat in senators. Offices. Don't remind me. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've done the whole nine yard. You you know, senators, aides and you're you might as well be a political reporter right now. You are just as much <laughs> a political reporter as your lovely wife. Um when Sankey and George K and George Klyavkov go to Washington together, now there has been lobbying. There has been lobby. The those commissioners have been in front of senators and 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 Congress people. Like it wasn't new, but I. But is there something significant about those those two uh, pairing up to create a dynamic duo in this space where Mark Emmert is now sort of seeding from the picture? So was there something significant last week? Because I felt there might have been uh, that those two guys went to Washington to, to to maybe restart some lobbying for a federal, not just NIL bill, but, but probably even a little more than that, some federal intervention in college sports. Yeah, yeah. Big the Olympics, the Olympic sports, non-revenue sports um, were a topic, I know, 
uh, what would happen if college athletes were deemed employees, how that would shake up and they say, uh, you know, ruin the, the structure of, of Olympic sports in, in college. So I know that was a, to- a big topic. Was it significant or not? Uh, oh, I, I don't, I, it, like you said, it's been happening now for years. I mean, I'll way back when uh, Mark Emer came up here and I remember December, 2019 to tell kind of first really loudly and publicly lobby for an NIL legislation in Sankey. I know at least has been up here a few times. I think the significance of it is um, well, a couple of a couple of things. One, who it is, uh, right? George Klyavkov and Greg Sankey represent blue and red uh, regions of the country politically, uh, very different regions um, culturally as well. So there's something significant about that, and um, that they've kind of banded together. Uh, you know. Number two, I, I think that it happening, right, uh, just a few days or so after Mark Emmert. Yep. Pretty, uh, announced, pretty much a week. Pretty um, much a week. Yeah, a week, right, a week after Mark Emmert announced that uh, he would be stepping down. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the two commissioners are, like, taking, taking the mantle there from Emmert, who had been the one that, that, I mean, he was coming up here, it seemed like, once every month or two to, to do the same thing, and obviously it has failed. Um, and, and so it kind of seems like they're taking over for him in that way. And then the, the other significant thing was the, the timing of it. Uh, well, I mean, the timing of it with the Emirates stuff, but also the timing of it with his new guidelines coming up and just all the stuff that we saw in Scottsdale buzzing about NIL. The fact that, boom, right in the middle of all this, they're going to Washington, D.C. was was just kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and they'll say this. I think they maybe have said it. Uh, they don't expect any federal legislation this year before the midterm elections. And it's going to be hard enough next year. Uh, uh, but it, they, they contend and everybody in college athletics seems to contend that it is, it is needed uh, and it, it's got to get done. And the only way maybe to get it done is to have a bunch of chaos. And it kind of feels like we're on the way there. All right. So last thing before you, before we wrap this sucker up, is a little closer to the field. We're not completely on the field, but we're getting closer to things that actually affect what's on the field. And that is, uh, looks like we're going to get uh, a lifting of the uh, initial initial scholarship cap, um, the 25 initial counters. Uh, per per year, so we're gonna blow out. You can sign more than twenty five. It's back to the future. We're going back to uh, over signing days. You're gonna have used get get used to nut cranked up here. He's gonna go sign forty guys, right? You can do that now. Um, and you're also um, creating. I think we're the, the NCAA is probably gonna create some transfer windows to manage a little bit again roster management. Figure out who we got and when. So if you want to enter the portal, that's fine. But if you want to enter the portal and be immediately eligible, you're going to have to do it in, you know, a window sort of in the late fall, early winter, maybe. And then another one in sort of uh, mid spring. Um, It sounds like those two things are are pretty much fait accompli at this point. I think the football oversight already maybe sort of tipped its hat to them. And then they just have to go through for for approval from the other boards. Um, uh, let's put it this way. What were the concerns? I think those are going to happen. I think, generally speaking, uh, people like the idea. The coaches supported them. But but like anything else, it's not 100%. So what were the concerns about implementing these things that are pretty much in the pipe and down the road? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think, well, for the initial, uh, the 25-man uh, yearly uh, signing limit, there was a big concern, and like you mentioned, it over-signing, um, right? Uh, you have coaches maybe who push out players that uh, are struggling or have failed to live up to whatever standard, and they push them out and make room thus for to sign more players, sign like that. Yeah, one year Houston not signed like 40, 40 players um, in like blue or gray shirted, like half of them or something. Uh, and now you don't need a blue or gray shirt. Now you have room to add them if you, as long as you stay at or below the 85 overall scholarship limit. So there, there's a concern even from a lot of coaches that we're going to open the door to, to, uh, you know, coaches over signing again and pushing out players. Certainly ADs are concerned about that as well. Um, but at the rate they're losing players to transfer in the portal and everything, it just seems like this was a necessary thing that they, they had to do um, to kind of make sure teams get back to 85. But there is, there certainly are, um, there certainly are, are, are worried coaches and ADs out there that this is, going to open the door to, to um, cutting, you know, players being cut, so to speak, and huge classes signed. I, I was talking to a uh, lower-level Power 5 coach who um, who mentioned that he believes the Blue Bloods, you know, the top 8, 10, 12 programs will will use this, um, you know, to, to do exactly what I was talking about and take the top players from the lower Power 5 level or the Group of 5 level and uh, add them to their to their roster, seasoned, experienced players. Add them to their roster and push out others. I mean, I guess, I guess we'll see. Uh, I guess we'll see. Um, the other thing, the transfer portal windows, yeah, it's kind of a long time coming. This is something that's been talked about for a while, and uh, about a month or six weeks ago, it was kind of made clear to me that this was definitely happening. The transformation committee had kind of okayed it because um, everything's running through that committee. As well, and I think what you'll see is, I believe it's a after um, a player the Sunday after Thanksgiving uh, starts the open fall period where the portal opens up, mm-hmm. and then it'll closes five days I believe after uh, if you play in a bowl game five days after your bowl game I believe if you don't play in the bowl game I think there's some maybe date right. uh, that has been set to make it a two or three week period and then it'll close. Um, and then after or right around the end of spring practice, I think it's April 15th, it'll open, you know, go through May one. And that, that is certainly a, um, a way to, I guess, bring some regulation, uh, to the transfers and a little, maybe calm the waters. I know a lot of coaches and ADs were, have been really concerned about, you know, 18, 19 year old kid, just making kind of a, a, rash uh, decision in leaving getting in the portal like mid-season kind of leaving the team uh, mid-season and that that did happen uh, uh, certainly more than a few times and so I think that is one thing that this will it'll bring a little uh, maybe regulation to this and we've seen you know players getting quote stuck in the portal and stuff because the decision they made so maybe this gives them a little more uh, time to decide and to pause a little bit. And then it also probably helps, you know, the uh, roster management for coaches. The bad thing about it is, is it 
is it uh, is the NCA going to be sued and uh, because <laughs> of it? And I'm sure that's coming, right? I'm sure a player gets, who gets in the portal May 3rd, two days after the date or whatever, um, and wants to be immediately eligible is going to hire a lawyer if they don't ever had one, already have one and try to get a waiver or sue the NCA. So I'm sure that's coming down the line. We live in a litigious society, and um, that's that's probably uh, going to happen. I, I think that um, I think that that is uh, the original concern of why they didn't put windows in the first place. I, right. They had discussed five years ago putting windows, and that was the concern: is are we restricting the athletes too much? And given Austin decision, you know, this might open the door for for more lawsuits. Yeah, well, it, right. It all it all goes back to the idea of you can't treat you have to treat the stu- all the students the same, right? Why why are football players subjected to a window when a, a non athlete or or a different athlete is not subjected mm-hmm. to a window? So, anytime you treat the athletes different from the students or the athletes at different sports differently from each other, raises the antennas. And you're right, it gets the lawyers out because, quite frankly, it, it isn't fair. It isn't. It isn't really isn't fair if you start thinking about this as an yeah. amateur enterprise and not a business. If you start thinking it of, of of it as a professional sports league, a minor league professional sports league, of course it makes sense to have sort of controls that way. But they don't want to think of it as a minor league professional sports mm-hmm. league. They want to mm-hmm. think of it as something different. Ross, this has been fun. Uh, you're you are the best at this stuff. Uh, you've done a great job on this beat and getting us up to speed on what's going on with NIL and all the off-the-field stuff. Uh, And I promise you we will start talking football soon enough, Uh, not just uh, my listeners and I, but you, with you. Next time we're going to get you on, we're going to have you just talk football. All right? Does that that work for you? I'm going to have to read up. I don't even know what's (laughs) going on. Like, like, you know, you're so busy invested with all these issues and stuff. It's like uh, like I I couldn't even name, you know, the top – five teams in the nation coming in the next year, man. I got to get, I got to read up as media days gets closer. Exactly. Well, uh, uh, I've, I've seen his tweets. Phil Steele should be out with his magazine pretty soon. And, uh, um, right. you know what, Ross, the top five teams are going to be the same top five teams. They are every year. It's, it's, it's just maybe slightly different order. Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated is great. He's my friend, and we had a chance to hang out with each other recently, so that made us happy even though we were running around chasing stories. Uh, Ross, great job. Appreciate your time, and I'm sure we'll bump into each other soon enough, uh, maybe in Destin, maybe somewhere else real soon. Yep, sounds good. Thanks, Rob. And now, three and out. First down. Really interesting transfer portal move by former Baylor quarterback Gary Bohannon. So Bohannon jumped in the portal after losing the spring competition for QB1 to Blake Shapin in Waco. Instead of landing at another Power 5 school, Bohannon has committed to USF and coach Jeff Scott. The Bulls have been real bad in Scott's first two years. Basically, it's been a strip-it-down-to-the-studs rebuild in Tampa. Scott seems to have a long leash, But by year three, there needs to be some improvement, if not to save his job, but to show the the next wave of recruits that, hey, we can win here and we have some momentum towards being a successful program again in Tampa. Timmy McLean, who played 
as a freshman last season seemed to be the likely starter at quarterback heading into 2022. But even when McLean showed some flashes last year, you could tell he was a player in need of some time for development. I don't know if the rest of the roster is up to speed, but I would say this about USF's chances this year. The American has a proven track record of teams making big jumps forward from one season to another. Almost every year, there is a team picked toward the back of the pack in the AAC that contends for the conference title. What's standing in USF's way of being a turnaround team, the big turnaround team this year, is a brutal schedule. That includes games against BYU, Florida, and Louisville out of conference and against UCF, Houston, Cincinnati, and SMU in the conference. Basically, USF plays all the good teams in the AAC. It's hard to peg USF as this year's turnaround team in the American, but I do think with Bohannon on board, there is a path here for the Bulls to flirt with bowl eligibility if they can spring one upset among their toughest conference games. Second down, one last portal quarterback note. Arizona State made a nice pickup of Emory Jones, the former Florida quarterback. That said, there has been a lot of players pouring out of Tempe this offseason. Considering all that has been going on off the field, it is really hard, really hard to see a path to things ending well for Herm Edwards and the Sun Devils in 2022. Third down, the last few episodes have been very much focused on off-field issues in college football and add in the NFL draft, and we really haven't talked all that much about the coming season, teams and players. We're going to try to change that up in the next few weeks. We're here to inform and entertain, and while I suspect our listeners like the information about NIL and TV contracts and the state of college sports, we also like to talk about what's going on on the field. We're not all that far from talking season, as Steve Spurrier once called it. So if you found yourself thinking, boy, I miss talking about football, we got you covered there in the upcoming weeks. Promise. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please, please, please follow so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.